Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When we are young, we are told not to talk to strangers. But no one ever said you shouldn't talk to small furry creatures. Maybe that is a warning that parents need to add to the many they teach their children. Because tiny and cute doesn't necessarily mean safe. There's a creepypasta story about just such a creature. And in the story, this creature preys on the young and innocent. His motive is unknown, but his intentions are clear. He will pretend to be a friend, but don't let him fool you. He wants to play dangerous games. Welcome to Freaky Folklore the podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. Today we are discussing Mr. Widemouth, a sneaky evil creature that tries to trick children into harming themselves. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave an honest review on iTunes, too. The more we get, the more we grow, and hopefully, the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. Sandy was no stranger to struggles. She had gotten pregnant at the age of 18, on the night of her senior prom. The baby's father and her parents had insisted that an abortion was the best option, but Sandy couldn't do it. She wasn't sure what prompted her feelings for this tiny life inside of her. But she had to protect it at any cost, and the cost had ended up being high. Her parents kicked her out, and the baby's daddy, who had once been a crush, turned into someone she didn't even like. He didn't even stick around long enough for her first ultrasound. She got a job at the local Walmart before she began to show, and with government aid, she made just enough to pay rent and buy groceries. When Archie was born, she knew immediately that she had done the right thing. When she looked down into those tiny eyes, she believed with all her heart that this was her reason for existing. Not long after, her parents became curious and eventually came around. It was love at first sight, but she remembered that they had never wanted him in the first place. 
she no longer trusted them. She refused their help and was determined to make it on her own. Over the next six years, Sandy managed to keep a roof over their heads and keep them both fed, and at the same time she had been writing a book. It was after work one day when she checked the mail and found the letter from a publisher. They wanted to publish her book. She still worked for Walmart, but soon she would be able to quit and work from home writing. They were offering her an amazing contract. Archie had grown into a beautiful little red-haired boy with rosy cheeks. He was smart, sweet, and funny, and the best thing was that he loved to sing. She would read him a story at night and then stand outside his door to listen to the songs that he would make up. Sandy would smile and shake her head, sure that he would someday be a famous singer or songwriter. Her heart was full, but there was one more thing that she wanted to make their lives complete. She wanted a house, a home where Archie could grow up, with a backyard he could play in. When she received her first check from the publishing company, she began searching for the perfect home for her and Archie. It wasn't enough to pay for a house, but it was certainly enough for a down payment. She found the perfect little three-bedroom house on a cul-de-sac at the edge of town. It was within walking distance of the elementary school. The house looked like a little cottage, with one bedroom downstairs and the other two upstairs. It even had a large fenced-in backyard with a cluster of fruit trees. It was a little over a month later before the cell closed and they moved in. She turned the downstairs bedroom into an office, and her and Archie took the ones upstairs. Everything seemed to be going perfect. She had met several of the neighbors, and a couple of them had kids close to Archie's age, which meant he could possibly form some close childhood friendships. Sandy was on cloud nine, until things got a little weird two weeks later after they moved in. Sandy's bedroom was right down the hall from Archie's, and after she tucked him in one night, she heard his voice as she passed by the door. This wasn't unusual, except that instead of singing, he seemed to be carrying on a conversation. She put her ear to the door and tried to make out his words, but the door muffled the sound. What was strange is that she thought she heard another voice other than Archie's. Usually she would knock, trying to teach him privacy and respect, but instead she quickly opened the door. Archie was sitting up in bed, looking down at the floor on the other side of the room. Who are you talking to, Archie? She asked him. He looked at her and back down at the floor before answering. No one. I was, uh, talking to myself. Oh, and were you answering yourself too? She said with raised brows. Yeah, I do that sometime. I've heard you do it too, Mom. She smiled as she walked over to him. Yeah, but I'm a grown-up. We do silly stuff like that. I guess maybe you get that from me. But you need to be sleeping, so lay down. She reached over and tucked him in for the second time, then kissed him on the forehead. Good night, sweetie, she said before exiting his room. She didn't hear his voice anymore that night, but she looked in on him one more time before going to bed 
and found him sound asleep. As the weeks went by, she began to worry about Archie. She could hear his conversations almost every night now. During the day, he had become more and more quiet. His appetite had decreased, and he was beginning to get dark rings under his eyes. She decided it was time to make an appointment with his pediatrician. When she called, she was relieved that they were able to see him the next day. Archie didn't make a fuss about going like he usually did. Instead, he was eerily quiet. The doctor couldn't even get a laugh from him, even with his old magic trick of pulling a sucker out of Archie's ear. He checked him for everything, and even took blood to send in for testing. But the conclusion was that he was completely healthy. While Archie was putting on his shoes and socks, the doctor pulled Sandy aside and handed her a business card. In case you would like to have someone look at him with other qualifications, he said as he handed the card to her, I'm not saying he needs a psychiatrist, but maybe she can get him to open up. My kids love her, he said reassuringly. Sandy told him thank you, but didn't look at the card until she and Archie were back in the car. It was for a Dr. Sarah Roca at Northwest Pediatric Psychiatry. She was thankful for the card and planned on calling as soon as she was back home. She would try anything at this point. As they turned down their street, she noticed for the first time the pillars of smoke rising in the air. Her heart raced at the thought of their house being on fire, and she was a little ashamed that she was relieved when she saw that it was one of her neighbors. She recognized the family that was standing outside on the street watching their home burn. It was the Wilsons. They had a daughter just a year younger than Archie. She would have to make a point to reach out and check on them and to see what she could do for their family. The fire trucks left a few hours later and it looked like the home was a total loss. After Sandy called and made the appointment for Archie, she called Carrie who lived across the street to make sure the family with the burned house was okay and if there was anything she could do for them. Carrie gave her the name of a friend of the family who had started a fund drive and the location that she could donate items the family may need. Then she told her what she heard about the fire. So, she began rather ominously, it seems that they suspect Sasha, the five-year-old daughter. They think she lit the curtains in her bedroom on fire with a cigarette lighter. The parents were heard telling a policeman that their daughter had recently developed an invisible friend, and that the girl said he told her to do it. She continued to tell Sandy how her son had once had an invisible friend, but had never done anything so dangerous. A knot was developing in the pit of Sandy's stomach. Was it just a coincidence that Archie was talking to someone that she couldn't see? Two days later, Archie had his appointment with Dr. Sarah. After talking to Archie, she assured Sandy that having an invisible friend was a healthy part of childhood development and that he would eventually grow out of it. She thought she would feel better after Archie was given a clean bill of mental and physical health. And she did a little, but something was still nagging at her. A few days went by and Archie seemed to be doing better. He was eating like he'd hit a growth spurt and his color seemed to be coming back. To celebrate, she wanted to take him to do something fun. So that afternoon, she packed a lunch and took Archie to the park. It was their first time there since moving, 
and Archie was super excited about the huge playground with obstacle courses, swings, and slides. He ran off in the direction of the wooden fort, and Sandy laughed as she followed him and tried to keep up. He was so fast, and there were so many kids there, it took a minute to locate him. She found him at the top of the fort enclosure. He was shimmying his way up to the roof. It was too high, and why in the world would he climb up there in the first place? Sandy began to yell his name. Archie! Archie, get down from there, right? The words got stuck in her throat when she watched him stand on the highest section of the wood structure and turn around. He was talking to someone or something that she couldn't see. And then he turned and jumped. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. There are many different definitions of folklore, depending on who you ask. The New York Folklore Society, however, has one of the simplest definitions. Folklore, according to the society, is made up of cultural ways in which a group maintains and passes on a shared way of life. A group can be as few as two people, or it can be millions. The group only needs to have one common factor, whether it is music, food, legends, or myths. All group members are aware of the fundamental ideas that make up their subculture. For many people, they immediately think folklore refers to fairy tales and mythological creatures. However, as we've already mentioned, folklore consists solely of the tales of a group that has at least one thing in common. That's pretty much it. Because of the way people spread rumors and urban legends online, they spread swiftly. People frequently copy and paste well-known pieces of text from the internet which eventually circulate throughout forums and social networking sites. For obvious reasons, content that suddenly becomes strange or frightening is commonly referred to as creepypasta. In past episodes, we have discussed creepypastas such as Slenderman, Siren Head, and Ted the Caver. Today, we're going to discuss another popular creepypasta, or as some are now calling it, internet folklore. This creature almost sounds cute, but is extremely malicious and dangerous. Sometimes the tiniest monsters are the scariest ones. His name is Mr. Widemouth, 
and he was created in a story submitted online by someone known only as Perfect Circle 35. Mr. Widemouth is the main antagonist of the well-known creepypasta story of the same name, Mr. Widemouth. He is a mischievous creature whose nature is to manipulate children into injuring themselves, resulting in countless deaths of young people. The best horror frequently leaves us doubting everything and unsure of what is real, and the Mr. Widemouth creepypasta is no exception. Mr. Widemouth is a short, anonymous internet story that feels like the perfect representation of the creepypasta genre. It is a tale about memory and childhood. As we get older, the events from our youth become hazy and sometimes menacing, and the main character lives in that transitional space. More significant, though, is the fact that the Mr. Widemouth creepypasta is genuinely spooky. This short piece of digital fiction packs an unexpected punch, and the antagonist who bears the same name has gained some popularity online. The tale opens in the third person. Through his apparent reminiscing, the narrator is introduced to us. He starts off by talking about his early years, how he moved around a lot as a child, and how most of his recollections are hazy, except for one set of memories which remains as clear as glass, as though they were just produced yesterday. It's easier to just hear the story for yourself. This is the story of Mr. Widemouth. During my childhood, my family was like a drop of water in a vast river, never remaining in one location for long. We settled in Rhode Island when I was eight, and there we remained until I went to college in Colorado Springs. Most of my memories are rooted in Rhode Island, but there are fragments in the attic of my brain, which belonged to the various homes we had lived in when I was much younger. Most of these memories are unclear and pointless, chasing after another boy in the backyard of a house in North Carolina, trying to build a raft to float on the creek behind the apartment we rented in Pennsylvania, and so on. But there is one set of memories which remains as clear as glass, as though they were just made yesterday. I often wonder whether these memories are simply lucid dreams produced by the long sickness I experienced that spring, but in my heart, I know they are real. We were living in a house just outside the bustling metropolis of New Vineyard, Maine, population 643. It was a large structure, especially for a family of three. There were a number of rooms that I didn't see in the five months we resided there. In some ways, it was a waste of space, but it was the only house on the market at the time, at least within an hour's commute to my father's place of work. The day after my fifth birthday, attended by my parents alone, I came down with a fever. The doctor said I had mononucleosis, which meant no rough play and more fever for at least another three weeks. It was horrible timing to be bedridden. We were in the process of packing our things to move to Pennsylvania, and most of my things were already packed away in boxes, leaving my room barren. My mother brought me ginger ale and books several times a day, and these served the function of being my primary form of entertainment for the next few weeks. Boredom always loomed just around the corner, waiting to rear its ugly head and compound my misery. I don't exactly recall how I met Mr. Widemouth. I think it was about a week after I was diagnosed with mono. My first memory of the small creature was asking him if he had a name. 
He told me to call him Mr. Widemouth because his mouth was large. In fact, everything about him was large in comparison to his body. His head, his eyes, his crooked ears. But his mouth was by far the largest. You look kind of like a Furby, I said as he flipped through one of my books. Mr. Widemouth stopped and gave me a puzzled look. Furby? What's a Furby? He asked. I shrugged. You know the toy. The little robot with the big ears. You can pet and feed them. Almost like a real pet. Oh. Mr. Widemouth resumed his activity. You don't need one of those. They aren't the same as having a real friend. I remember Mr. Widemouth disappearing every time my mother stopped by to check in on me. I lay under your bed. He later explained. I don't want your parents to see me, because I'm afraid they won't let us play anymore. We didn't do much during those first few days. Mr. Widemouth just looked at my books, fascinated by the stories and pictures they contained. The third or fourth morning after I met him, he greeted me with a large smile on his face. I have a new game we can play, he said. We have to wait until after your mother comes to check on you, because she can't see us play it. It's a secret game. After my mother delivered more books and soda at the usual time, Mr. Widemouth slipped out from under the bed and tugged my hand. We have to go to the room at the end of the hallway, he said. I objected at first, as my parents had forbidden me to leave my bed without their permission. But Mr. Widemouth persisted until I gave in. The room in question had no furniture or wallpaper. Its only distinguishing feature was a window opposite the doorway. Mr. Widemouth darted across the room and gave the window a firm push, flinging it open. He then beckoned me to look out at the ground below. We were on the second story of the house, but it was on a hill, and from this angle the drop was farther than two stories due to the incline. I like to play pretend up here, Mr. Widemouth explained. I pretend that there is a big soft trampoline below this window, and I jump. If you pretend hard enough, you bounce back up like a feather. I want you to try. I was a five-year-old with a fever, so only a hint of skepticism darted through my thoughts as I looked down and considered the possibility. It's a long drop, I said. But that's all part of the fun. It wouldn't be fun if it was only a short drop. If it were that way, you may as well just bounce on a real trampoline. I toyed with the idea, picturing myself falling through thin air only to bounce back to the window on something unseen by human eyes. But the realist in me prevailed. Maybe some other time, I said. I don't know if I have enough imagination. I could get hurt. Mr. Widemouth's face contorted into a snarl, but only for a moment. Anger gave way to disappointment. If you say so, he said. He spent the rest of the day under my bed, quiet as a mouse. The following morning, Mr. Widemouth arrived holding a small box. I want to teach you how to juggle, he said. Here are some things you can use to practice before I start giving you lessons. I looked in the box. It was full of knives. My parents will kill me, I shouted. 
horrified that Mr. Widemouth had brought knives into my room, objects that my parents would never allow me to touch. I'll be spanked and grounded for a year. Mr. Widemouth frowned. It's fun to juggle with these. I want you to try it. I pushed the box away. I can't. I'll get in trouble. Knives aren't safe to just throw in the air. Mr. Widemouth's frown deepened into a scowl. He took the box of knives and slid under my bed, remaining there the rest of the day. I began to wonder how often he was under me. I started having trouble sleeping after that. Mr. Widemouth often woke me up at night, saying that he put a real trampoline under the window. A big one, one that I couldn't see in the dark. I always declined and tried to go back to sleep, but Mr. Widemouth persisted. Sometimes he stayed by my side until early in the morning encouraging me to jump. He wasn't so fun to play with anymore. My mother came to me one morning and told me I had her permission to walk around outside. She thought the fresh air would be good for me, especially after being confined to my room for so long. Ecstatic, I put on my sneakers and trotted out to the back porch, yearning for the feeling of sun on my face. Mr. Widemouth was waiting for me. I have something I want you to see, he said. I must have given him a weird look because he then said, It's safe, I promise. I followed him to the beginning of a deer trail which ran through the woods behind the house. This is an important path, he explained. I've had a lot of friends about your age. When they were ready, I took them down this path to a special place. You aren't ready yet, but one day I hope to take you there. I returned to the house wondering what kind of place lay beyond that trail. Two weeks after I met Mr. Widemouth, the last load of our things had been packed into a moving truck. I would be in the cab of that truck, sitting next to my father for the long drive to Pennsylvania. I considered telling Mr. Widemouth that I would be leaving, but even at five years old, I was beginning to suspect that perhaps the creature's intentions were not to my benefit despite what he said otherwise. For this reason, I decided to keep my departure a secret. My father and I were in the truck at 4 a.m. He was hoping to make it to Pennsylvania by lunchtime tomorrow, with the help of an endless supply of coffee and a six-pack of energy drinks. He seemed more like a man who was about to run a marathon rather than one who was about to spend two days sitting still. Early enough for you? my father asked with a hint of sympathy. I nodded and placed my head against the window, hoping for some sleep before the sun came up. I felt my father's hand on my shoulder. This is the last move, son, I promise. I know it's hard for you, as sick as you've been. Once Daddy gets promoted, we can settle down and you can make friends. I opened my eyes as we backed out of the driveway. I saw Mr. Widemouth's silhouette in my bedroom window. He stood motionless until the truck was about to turn onto the main road. He gave a pitiful little wave goodbye, steak knife in hand. I didn't wave back. Years later, I returned to New Vineyard. The piece of land our house stood upon was empty except for the foundation. As the house burned down a few years after my family left, 
Out of curiosity, I followed the deer trail that Mr. Widemouth had shown me. Part of me expected him to jump out from behind a tree and scare the living bejesus out of me. But I felt that Mr. Widemouth was gone, somehow tied to the house that no longer existed. The trail ended at the New Vineyard Memorial Cemetery. I noticed that many of the tombstones belonged to children. While it's unknown what became of Mr. Widemouth after the house burned down, many have speculated that he died in the fire or he managed to escape and is now hiding somewhere else. There's also the possibility that he himself set the house on fire. Mr. Widemouth is a small supernatural being who almost looks like a Furby, a toy that was quite popular in the early 2000s, but who has a mouth that is much larger than his head, hence the name. Although his mouth is the main trait he has, he is also known to have wide eyes and crooked ears. Despite his frightening and weird appearance, Mr. Widemouth is a very cunning creature. Through his conduct in this story, Mr. Widemouth demonstrated that he was a master manipulator. Mr. Widemouth would keep pressuring the narrator to use damaging techniques and behaviors. He is reported to have been able to trick numerous kids into killing themselves because of his ability to victimize and manipulate them. Mr. Widemouth may not possess any magical powers, but he is incredibly persuasive and cunning, especially with children, who are his main targets, and certainly the easiest to trick. Sandy's screams seemed to quiet the playground instantly. Every parent and child turned to look at her as she ran across the playground. Archie had jumped and landed face down in the gravel. When she reached him, he wasn't moving, and his arm was bent at a disturbing angle. She was afraid to move him, but she had to make sure he was breathing. She reached down and turned him onto his back as gently as possible. There was no doubt that he was breathing because he began screaming in agony. One of the other parents offered to call 911, but Sandy thought that it would take too long so she picked him up and headed for the car. Archie was sobbing the entire way. She laid him down in the seat and reclined it to try and take some of the pressure off of his broken arm before she ran around and climbed into the driver's side. It's okay, baby, she reassured him. Mama's gonna take you to the hospital and they will make it better. He seemed only mildly coherent, but Sandy felt that sick feeling return to her stomach when he began saying, he told me to jump. He said it wouldn't hurt. Who told you to jump, Archie? Who was it? She begged him to tell her. She would hate to have to hunt down the little bully that talked her son into almost breaking his neck, but she would. But as soon as she thought it, she knew he wasn't talking about another child. The drive to the ER took about ten minutes, and luckily they weren't busy. They took Archie right back and began ordering x-rays. They gave him something to ease his pain, and the crying eventually turned into a worn-out nap. When the doctor finally came in, Archie was snoring. The tall, bearded doctor in the white coat looked at Archie and then at Sandy. Kid had a rough day, and I'm afraid it's about to get worse. We're going to have to set that arm. It was a horrible experience for them both. Sandy could hardly stand his pained screams. When it was over, the doctor said before leaving, I'll prescribe some pain medication, 
but only use it if ibuprofen and Tylenol doesn't work. I don't like giving narcotics to kids. Sandy nodded and repeatedly thanked the doctor as he left. They were sent down with Archie in a wheelchair to a room where a cast was placed around his arm. Archie was still groggy from the pain medicine when they left, and Sandy saw it as the perfect opportunity to question him about what he had said earlier. Archie, she began in as soft a tone as possible. Can you tell me what you were talking about earlier? Who was it that told you to jump off the playground equipment? He yawned really big before answering. Mr. Widemouth, he always wants me to do scary stuff. And then he leaned his head over onto the door and dozed off. Sandy was frustrated and confused, but she didn't have the heart to continue to push him right then. There would be time later. At least now she knew something. What she knew wasn't much, but it was more than she had before. She carried Archie to his bed when they got home. They must have been at the hospital longer than she thought because it was already getting dark. She was almost as tired as he was, so after she made sure that he was tucked in safely in bed, she ran a hot bath and poured a glass of wine. She would only have one. That was her limit when Archie was home, and especially tonight. She got the water as hot as she could stand it and hung a fresh towel on the hook next to the tub. She set her glass down on the edge and stuck her toe into the water to test the heat. It stung, but it didn't hurt. That's the perfect temperature for a relaxing soak. She submerged her body slowly and finally laid her head onto the back of the tub. She grabbed her glass of wine while wiggling the stiffness out of her toes beneath the water. The heat felt as if it was pulling the stress straight from her body. Sandy didn't know how long she had lain there but the water had begun to cool by the time she was awoken by Archie's screams. She jumped out of the tub, flinging water everywhere and almost falling in the process. Grabbing her robe, she opened the door and pulled it on as she headed down the hallway to Archie's room. Her heart was racing for fear of what she would find, but she was relieved when all she found was a teary-eyed little boy shaking in his bed. What happened? Did you have a nightmare? She asked him. No, he woke me up. He won't go away, Archie sobbed. I told him I didn't want to be his friend no more, but he just laughed. He was beginning to hiccup by the time she wrapped her arms around him in comfort. Who are you talking about, Archie? Is it Mr. Widemouth again? Y yes, he stuttered. Archie, where does Mr. Widemouth go and why can't I see him? She asked. Sometimes he jumps under my bed and hides, but I don't know where he lives. I thought he lived in our house somewhere, but he told me he plays with all of the kids on this street. Sandy cringed, remembering what Carrie had told her about Sasha, the five-year-old down the street, who was suspected of setting the house on fire. She didn't normally believe in ghosts or the boogeyman, but her instincts told her that this was more than just an invisible friend. She began to form a plan on what she should do next, not even sure that it would work and feeling a little silly about it. She pulled Archie close to her and offered, Do you want to sleep with me tonight? He didn't say a word, but instead nodded his head with obvious enthusiasm. She scooped him up and headed to her room. 
After she tucked him into her bed, she pulled out her laptop and began doing some research, hoping to find some clue to what she was dealing with. She was disappointed when all she found was a creepypasta story. But at the same time, the story was eerily similar, if not almost identical to what they were going through. Was it possible that Mr. Widemouth was real? She had no doubt that he was, but she had no idea how to deal with him. There was no research and no history on how to get rid of him. No one even knew where he had actually come from or what he was. Sandy finally decided she would do what any parent would do. She would hide and wait for Mr. Widemouth to make an appearance. The next night after Archie fell asleep, she took the poker from the fireplace and went into his room. Looking around, the only place she could find to hide was in his closet. Once inside, she left the door ajar just enough to see Archie sleeping in his bed. The minutes ticked by and nothing happened, but she was determined to wait as long as she had to, but eventually, she fell asleep. The clicking of the bedroom door shutting woke her. She noticed immediately that Archie was not in his bed. Fear sucked the air from her lungs as she climbed out of the closet and began to search the room. She searched the house, looking in every room, but he wasn't there. She looked in the backyard and there was no sign of him there either. Sandy began to panic and was about to grab the phone to call 911 when she heard her car start up in the garage. She turned and ran to the door leading to the garage, but something was wedged against it and it wouldn't open. She wasn't sure how long Archie had before the exhaust from the car would fill the garage and become toxic. She began ramming her shoulder against the door as hard as she could, and finally it broke free. She found Archie sitting in the driver's seat, with the windows down, alone and wide-eyed. Oh, thank God, you scared the hell out of me, she blurted out. She opened the door and reached in to grab Archie, but saw something small dash behind the car from the corner of her eye. She paused for a moment before rolling the windows up and then turning the car off and removing the keys. Archie, I'm going to lock the doors, and I don't want you to unlock them until I tell you. Do you understand? He nodded quickly and she shut the door, clicking the lock button on the remote twice just to make sure. She held the fire poker firmly in her hand and began to circle the car. She had just about made it completely around when a small creature ran out from under the front bumper. As it ran past her, it clawed her ankles, causing bloody scratch marks on both. She didn't stop to inspect the scratches, but instead began searching the part of the garage the thing had ran into. There were numerous utility shelves cluttered with boxes she had yet to unpack from their move. She started sliding them aside one by one, carefully, but had only made it through the first shelf when she heard Archie begin to scream. She quickly turned back to the car and found this small, ugly creature trying to pry its way through the top of the driver's side window. She didn't hesitate to swing, and the impact of the fire poker sent the creature flying through the air, where it bounced off the garage door and landed on the floor behind the car. Sandy quietly eased over towards the unmoving, tiny little body and nudged it with the poker. It didn't move or even make a sound. She was relieved, and believing she had killed it, she ran back to the car, unlocked the door, and quickly grabbed Archie. 
She locked the garage door behind them when they were back inside and immediately dialed 911. She realized as she was explaining to the operator what had happened that it sounded crazy. It took what seemed like forever, but a police officer finally showed up along with another officer from Animal Control. They were careful when they entered the garage. Sandy and Archie sat in the living room listening and waiting. A few moments later, both officers returned. They had found no sign of the creature. They told her it was probably a raccoon and that it may be injured, but even if not, she had most likely scared it enough that it wouldn't be back. Sandy knew they were wrong about what the creature was, but they were right about one thing. After that night, Mr. Widemouth disappeared, and he never bothered Archie again. Sandy stayed alert, and when another child down the street jumped in front of a car and almost got killed, she was sure that she knew why. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts, such as Unexplained Encounters and Tales from the Break Room. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. Tune in next week as we discuss the Kashtaka, a shape-shifting creature from Clinket folklore. Until next time, stay safe out there, because this world is a strange one.